BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the secret lessons hostage negotiators around the world use to win the day, how to understand and influence people's emotional drivers, the two words that can transform any negotiation, the biggest hallmarks of powerful master negotiators, and much more with the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris Voss. This interview is amazing. Because the science of success has spread across the globe with more than 550,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy and more, I give away something awesome to my listeners every single month. This month, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222 to be entered to win. And if you want 10, yes, 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of that review to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. Lastly, if you're an international listener and you can't text that in, all you have to do is go to our website, scienceofsuccess.co, and join our mailing list. In our previous episode, we talked about execution, how to break down big goals into actionable steps, how and why Neil Patel hired a mama for himself, the 10-minute rule that you could help you achieve big productivity gains, how to optimize your life to free up huge amounts of time and more with Neil Patel. If you think you need help executing on your goals, listen to that episode. Today, we have an incredible guest on the show, Chris Voss. Chris is the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group an adjunct professor at Georgetown and the University of Southern California. During his 24-year term with the FBI, where he most recently served as the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, 
Chris worked with approximately 150 different kidnappings worldwide from the Middle East to Haiti, including a number of high-profile kidnappings. He also has been trained by the FBI, Scotland Yard, and Harvard in the art of negotiation and negotiated with the likes of terrorists, hostage takers, and bank robbers. Chris, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you on. So you, are, you obviously have an incredible background. Tell us a little bit about your story and kind of how you got down this path. You know, there I was walking through the cornfields of Iowa when I realized that I had to be a hostage negotiator. <laughs> no. You know, a police officer, FBI agent, New York City, part of the Joint Terrorist Task Force. Actually, I've been a SWAT guy. The crazy thing was uh, I had been on the SWAT team in the FBI and I had a recurring knee injury. And, you know, Providence, uh, the universe, got me into this whole communication thing, verbal communication. What, what, what a concept, right? But I knew we had hostage negotiators and I decided I wanted to learn how to be a hostage negotiator. And then it, you know, it led into just basic human con communication and how, how do we communicate with people who really don't see eye to eye to us, no matter how intense that is. And uh, it was great. I mean, I found it much more interesting and it added a lot to the rest of my life. And, you know, now let's make it work in business and personal life. And you've obviously been through some incredibly difficult, tense negotiation situations. One of the concepts that I believe you've talked about and something that I'm really interested in is the idea of the behavioral change stairway. Could you explain that concept a little bit? Well, you know, it's, it's the idea that there's a progression of how we get to where we want to go. And, you you know, the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line is like what I like to talk about in communication all the time, because we want to go directly at what we want. And the stairway is really a, started as a two-dimensional representation of, you know, we got to make some steps, and each step then becomes a foundation for the next step. And and first of it is just basic developing rapport, and you develop rapport, you know, by uh, I'll use a term that puts everybody to sleep, empathy. You know, most of the time, when was the last time you were at a cocktail party and you had an exciting conversation about the latest? developments and empathy. <laughs> it's probably, it's not being talked about on CNN, but it's really an indirect route to establishing a great relationship is letting the other side know you understand them and showing them how you understand. And one step leads to another, which basically then puts you in a position to influence other people. It's based on trust and it's based on really on emotional intelligence. And one step at a time, with each step being a, a great foundation for the next, and you can influence outcomes. You can change people's minds. And one of the things you've done incredibly well is bring emotion into the process of negotiation, which which originally sort of started out as a very dry, logic-driven field. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not bringing emotion in at all. It's there. It's the elephant in the room. I mean, there's this monstrous creature in the middle of every communication and what we want is based on what we care about. What we, you know, you make every single decision, each one of us, I make all my decisions based on what I care about. And that makes decision making by definition an emotional process. So, you know, my approach is let's stop kidding ourselves. Hostage negotiators don't kid themselves about emotions. So they said, okay, look, this is an emotionally driven situation. Give me a set of tools where I can navigate these emotions. You know, the, the history of business negotiation has been this fiction that somehow we're rational or we're logical. 
and that's you know I'm sorry it uh, and that's why emotional intelligence has become to the forefront of business success today study after study survey after survey shows that the top performers at every level in business are those who are using the most emotional intelligence every single level even you know IT internet related interactions you have to be able to communicate with people to get stuff done and so give me the tools from hostage negotiators, the tools that are designed for maximum success in emotions. And do they apply to our business and personal life? Absolutely, because we're driven by what we want. And so it's a recognition of the reality of we make our decisions based on what we want, emotional, what we care about, emotional intelligence. And these are the skills. These are phenomenal skills. You made an incredible point, which is that it's not that you're bringing emotion into the process. It's that it's already there and we just have to learn to work with it and accept and recognize that fact. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's just there. It's, I used to have to try to make the case for it, you know, and scientists don't understand what hold together the universe. And because they can't measure it, they say, well, there must be something out there called dark matter it must be dark matter. And I used to say emotions are the dark matter of negotiation. Because, you know, we haven't, we don't know what it is. We can't wrap our minds around it, but it holds everything together. So, you know, let's recognize that it exists and, and, and maximize it. And, and this stuff is very effective. I mean, you can't get away from it. And you touched on empathy a, a moment ago. Tell me about the, how to sort of leverage that, especially in situation where, you know, somebody listening might think, how can you have empathy for a terrorist or a hostage taker? Right, right. And you know what? And this is not your grandfather's empathy either. I mean, we've learned enough about it over the years. And, and, and that's why I changed the term in my book to tactical empathy. I mean, we know what this is. I, we know what look, we're looking for and we know how it affects people. So I'll tell you in advance, you know, what are the triggers you want to look for? And it changes people's outcomes. It's the real essence of connecting with someone because, you know, everybody can, uh, everybody can help you. There's, there's an old saying, never be mean to someone who could hurt you by doing nothing. And there's pretty much everybody that you interact with can probably hurt you by inaction or choosing not to do something. So if you're willing to accept that that's true, then the flip side is pretty much everybody you interact with can help you in some small way if they feel like it. And they feel like it when you connect with them, when you have rapport with them, when they feel like you understand them, you know, when, when they look at you and they say, that's right. You know, I believe in what you just said. And it can be something as simple as taking your application and putting it on the, on the bottom of the pile because they didn't like the way you spoke to them to putting it on the top or maybe taking your application or whatever you want your request and directly walking in and see the boss at that moment. Or it's the Macy's salesperson who looks two ways to see if the manager's around and then decides to give you the employee discount because they like the way that you talk to them. I've had that happen to me a, a number of times. Um, you know, somebody's always in a position to help you if they feel like it. And when you start accumulating this over a long-term period of time, it's a return on your investment and you find yourself with great relationships and business deals and somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know what? I looked out for you today. There was this problem coming and I went ahead and dealt with it because I knew it was going to catch you off guard. And that's the way you become successful over, over a long period of time. And, and you're happier and the people that you do business with like doing business with you. 
So how can somebody who's who's listening right now apply the lessons of that you've learned from building empathy or creating tactical empathy for someone like a terrorist or a hostage taker? And, you know, what are some practical ways they could apply that in their own lives? Okay, um, great question. And and I'm glad you brought it back because, you know, the exercise, the challenge is let's define tactical empathy the same way Daniel Goleman calls cognitive empathy. And Goleman says that actually sociopaths are the best at this. And that's simply recognizing what's driving the other side and then articulating it back to them in a way where they feel heard. So this is what's important here is what's not said. I'm not saying you agree. I'm not saying you disagree. If I neither agree nor disagree with your position, if I simply understand where you're coming from and recognize it, that gives me the ability to have empathy with anybody. I can know what drives you without agreeing with it. And I can have empathy with a terrorist, you know, sympathy for the devil, empathy with a terrorist, not quite the same thing. I'm not agreeing it. I'm not feeling it. I'm just seeing it. And because of that, I can tell you what Jihadi John, uh, the killer from ISIS, I can tell you what drives him. And as soon as I know what drives him, because I simply recognize it, now I can influence it. I can move it. I can change it. I might not be able to change it a little. I might be able to change it a lot, but I'm greedy in my influence and I want to, and I'm very particular. My dollars are scarce. So I'm not spending my dollars when I can spend emotional intelligence and change the outcomes at the same time. And with that, it gives me the power to have influence on anybody on the planet. Might not be a little, might be a lot. I'm not willing to leave anything on the table. So I'll take whatever influence I can get to try to change the outcome. If you can accept that you only have to see where the other side's coming from to be able to then take apart what their drivers are and maybe dismantle them and, re- and rebuild them a little bit, their emotional drivers, you can have influence on, on anybody on the planet. And that's what a hostage negotiator does. We put ourselves in a position to influence anybody. We don't have to like them. We just have to be willing to influence them. I love that point that it doesn't matter sort of what your starting point is, you can create influence with anybody on the planet if you're able to really dig in and understand what they want, what they're feeling and thinking emotionally and, and what drives them. Yeah, you know, and 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 draw it's important to draw the distinction that understanding is not agreement. Now now that scares some people. It scares a lot of people. You know, I can understand Bernie Sanders supporters I can understand Donald Trump supporters. I can understand Hillary Clinton supporters. I can understand all of them. And as soon as I know where I'm, where they're coming from, it gives me an opportunity to adjust where they're going. You touched on this concept a moment ago, the idea of, and, and maybe it's a little bit different, but the idea of mirroring. Can you Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, a mirror is, and it's not the mirror that everybody else thinks of. Most people see mirroring as, let me mirror their body language. You know, let me stand like they stand. If they got their chin in their right hand, you know, let me put my right hand in my chin. If they if they're leaning against the wall, let me lean against the wall. The, the mirroring of the physical body language, that's not it. It's simpler and it's actually more powerful. The mirroring a hostage negotiator does What the difference is, the mirroring is just the repetition of the last one to three words that someone has said. The last one to three words that someone has said? Exactly. Just exactly like that. And it's it's a great simple tool that feels enormously awkward when you do it. When I'm training people, I have them do it right away because the biggest barrier to these skills is not their complexity or their intellectual challenge of understanding them. The barrier here is 
feeling awkward because it's different. You feel awkward. The other person feels listened to. A mirror triggers, you know, punches a button in somebody else's mind. It's like reword what you just said and go on. It's almost a command. I mean, it's the closest thing that uh, a lot of people that I train this say, wow, this is a Jedi mind trick. A Jedi mind trick? It's a Jedi mind trick because people love it and they want to go on. I once, and uh, you know, it's, it was a funny story. I was, it made me look uh, funny. And that's why I included it in the book. I had a, um, an employee that was mirroring me for 45 minutes once. I didn't even know it. My son was sitting there and finally he couldn't take it anymore. He goes, stop it. Don't you see what he's doing to you? And I was like, no, what, you know, what's he doing? He's been mirroring you for the last 45 minutes. You didn't even know it. You just enjoyed talking so much. He kept you going. So it's really just as simple as, as repeating back the last three or four words that they said. Right. You know, you pick out one to three words and the other problem it solves also is like most of us, when we say what we mean, we often use very words that are very carefully selected for our own brain. And we know what we mean by that, but there's a pretty good chance actually it isn't exactly the way the other person is thinking. And your perfect words are kind of missing the mark. And if somebody says, what do you mean by that? We're most likely to repeat the exact same words, only louder. It's like an American trying to be understood in France. You know, I can be, I just say it again in the, the only louder. And a, what a mirror does is it, it flips that switch so the, the person will repeat what they've said in different words. It's how you. You get someone to paraphrase themselves is what it really does. It triggers a paraphrase. You don't have to paraphrase for them. You let them paraphrase. And you're, you're going to increase your meaning. The other thing you're going to do, you mentioned moments before. It buys moments for you in the conversation so you get more time to think. And the other thing that mirroring does, and I've got a client of mine who's one of the smartest people I've ever met. He mirrors the other side's negotiation position, so key words in it every time, because he knows how they respond, tells them whether or not they're firm or whether or not they're open for conversation. And when you get someone to paraphrase themselves, that gives you a real clear idea of the firmness of their position. So the idea of buying moments in a conversation, I know you've talked about the importance of listening, and I want to dig into that, but also the idea that if you're focused on only on explaining yourself and explaining your arguments, it's really, really hard to kind of step back and understand what the other side is saying. Right. Yeah. Good point. And, you know, you need these moments because some people have described the art of negotiation as letting the other side have your way. Well, how do you let the other side have your way? You got to get the other guy talking, which means you have to be quiet and you have to keep them talking. Winning in a negotiation is not beating the other side because when you beat the other side, actually you leave resentment planted in them and they want to pay you back if they feel beaten. And what's going to happen is it's going to erode your implementation. And and you, as a human being or as a company, revenue is realized when it comes in, not when it's promised, which means you don't make your profit when the deal is signed. You make your profit as the deal is implemented, even if it's an agreement between a husband and a wife, you know, you both realize value as you carry out what you agreed to. And people who feel beaten aren't going to want to implement. They're not going to want to let you realize the revenue. Or again, they're going to, they're going to hurt you when they can by doing nothing. So you buy these moments. So you let the other side talk that you find out what's possible. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. You got to hear from the other side what those better things might be. 
And then when they came up with a great idea that you didn't think of, you know, you look on them and you congratulate them for how smart they are. And then they're going to implement. You're both going to like it and you're both going to be better off. And so you got to let the other side go first in order to get there. So going back a little bit to talk about more about how we can be better listeners. Tell me about the concept of active listening and how can we cultivate that? Well, it's it's not just active, but it's proactive. So you, you cultivate that first. The first and simplest way to cultivate it is to shut the front door, is to you know go silent. Is, and you know we talk about moments. What's a moment? A moment is three seconds. Give the other guy a chance to speak, and then actually try to paraphrase what he said, or ask an, a clarifying question. There's great power in clarity when you're trying to pull clarity out of the other side. Paraphrase what they've said. Mirror the last three words of what they just said to get them to paraphrase. You're designing a communication process that draws the other side out, which the other thing that you want the other side to do is you want them to show you their hidden cards. In every conversation, in every negotiation, there are things that we're holding close to the vest. It's really important to us. That's why we're holding them close to the vest. There are hidden cards, if you will, our proprietary information, our secret information. That happens every time. If you're holding cards, so are they. And where the real magic lies is where those cards overlap. So you've got to get the other side to trust you enough by listening, what we used to call active listening, which is not just sitting there with your mouth shut and glaring at them intensely, but it's asking them a good question. Asking them what or how. The two biggest great questions start with the words what or how. Or trying to draw them out with some clarification and then give the conversation back to them. Most of us, when we talk, we want to talk for half an hour. You know, ask them a question and let them start talking again. Encourage them. It's it's a very encouraging process, but it's very much how you, you, you get it there. They're black swans. They're hidden information. They're secret hidden cards where you make great deals. The two greatest questions start with the words, what or how? Explain that. What and how? People love to be asked how to do something. Or people love to be asked, you know, what about this works for you? Of the list of open-ended questions that you could use, what and how are the most powerful because they make the other side feel good. In many cases, what you've just done, though, is especially with how, you've caused, caused them. You've caused them to take a look at the overall situation and the context of it. And you've also caused them, you know, one of my favorite, my first favorite way of saying no is, how am I supposed to do that? Now, there's two things about saying that. First of all, it's those words. But secondly, and even more importantly, is your tone of voice. Because people can either feel like you're asking for help or you're making an accusation. I can say, how am I supposed to do that when you present me with a difficult challenge that I can't accomplish? Or I could say, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, exact same words, completely different meaning, which is an, an accusation. And I'm signaling that I don't like what you want and maybe even that I don't like you, which is bad for the communication. So the how question is one of the most flexible things combined with tone of voice to draw the other side out or even to set a boundary and say, look, I, I, I can't do that. And I need you to take a look at the whole context here. And I need you to look at me when I say, how am I supposed to do that? 
and it lets you know that I want to cooperate with you, but what you just put on the table just doesn't work. And you touched on this in that explanation. Tell me more about open-ended questions and why they're so important. Well, they, they invite the other side to talk. They show that you're willing to listen. And they are the most flexible overall. You can actually, you know, and some people have been running circles with, with the, the how and what questions. So how you follow up a how and what question is extremely important also. Every CEO on a planet has been asked, what keeps you awake at night? And they're tired of that question. Not that they're tired of the question, but as soon as they're done answering, the person that asked them doesn't listen to the answer in any way, shape, or form. And that gets us back to a little bit of the active listening or the proactive listening I talked about before. Somebody answers your question. Somebody answers your how or what question. You've got to show them that you were paying attention and that you just didn't have a preset list of things that you want to say regardless of what what their response is. But there's there's a list of what's called the reporter's questions of who, what, when, why, how, and where. And the how and what questions actually invite the longer answers. If I ask you when, where who, those are all very short answers, very concise answers. They don't invite a lot of conversation. If I ask you why, even when I want to know why, you feel accused. Why did you do that? Why did you wear that shirt? Why did you get up at seven o'clock this morning? It's one of the advantages I have as a hostage negotiator is having me use these skills on every, literally every culture on a planet Interesting side note, every hostage negotiation team, whether they're in Japan, whether they're in China, whether they're in Nigeria, whether they're in Latin America, use the same skills. And these skills have been road tested in every culture, and they work on us because we're human beings. The why question in every culture on the planet, we always ask why when we think someone's doing something wrong. And we're like battered children for why we always feel accused. And so that's why we knock that off of our list of questions asked. Now, you may need to know why. You just turn it to a what question instead of saying, why did you do that? You say, what made you do that? So if you throw all the rest of these out, you're left with the what and how questions, and, and they're the most powerful. Tell me the story of Jose Escobar's kidnapping. We used to use Jose Escobar was really when we moved completely away from the classic proof of life question, you know, what was the name of Jose's first dog when he was a kid? You know, the, the what questions that are the, that are designed to elicit a one word answer. And there are security questions for our computer. There are security questions for our bank accounts, our credit cards. You know, it's a question that sounds like an open ended question. It's usually a one or two word answer and only one person on the planet can answer it. That used to be the, the proof of life question. And we realized that, uh, you know, we weren't getting long answers. We didn't get that much out of it. It was really easy for the other side to answer it. Took no effort on their part. And bang, bang, we proved somebody was alive, but we really didn't get anywhere else. And we switched that to how do we know Jose's alive? And how are we supposed to pay you if we don't know he's alive? And that massively changed the dynamic because the other side, killers, terrorists, murderers. It made them stop and think. It made them look at the context. It made them look at us. It it accomplished all the things that we want a good how question to do. And the thing that I realized more than anything else was because the eternal dilemma in business is how do you get to the decision maker? Well, kidnapping organizations are businesses. 
And the decision maker is never the negotiator, just like every business negotiation. We found out after the fact was we kept asking the representative, the negotiator of the group, acting on the decision maker's behalf. How do we know Pepe's alive? How are we supposed to pay if we don't know he's alive? Their representative kept going back to the jungle and huddling up with the rest of the kidnappers saying, this is what I'm being asked. This is the answer I've been giving. I just want to know if this is the best way for us to proceed based on a question. And they spent a tremendous amount of time, we found out afterwards, talking about whether or not they were going to take Jose to town and put him on a phone. When we realized that that adjustment from what was the name of Pepe's first dog, or Jose's first dog, I, I call him Pepe now and then because that, that's actually his nickname, and how do we know Jose's alive, it changes the whole dynamic on the other side. And they get together and they work together in ways that we know that we had never made kidnapping groups work together before. Jose ultimately escaped. And part of us getting them to work together and slow the situation down contributed to his opportunity to escape. So that was our adjustment, getting away from one word answers to the how question. And we gained a tremendous amount of power over the other side when we did that. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. 
LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And how can that same proof of life concept be applied in a business context? Yeah, it's a great question. And it gets us back to, in business, the primary objective is to get to the decision maker. Get past the blocker, get to the decision maker. That's faulty because, first of all, it treats the blocker, who's an important player on their team, as if they need to be dismissed. And that sends a bad signal and it sets your blocker up as actually a deal killer on down the line. Because never be mean to someone who can hurt you by doing nothing. As soon as you're dismissive of the blocker, the blocker now begins to slow you down or chooses to let you be hurt by things that they can hurt you with inaction. So we need that blocker. We need to feel the, the blocker to feel included to get to the decision maker. And the how questions begin to involve the blocker in our solution. When you're talking to the blocker in business, the representative, the, the sales rep, the secretary, you know, whoever it might be, you want to ask things like, how are your objectives proceeding with your company? I mean, how can we work with you so that everybody is better off? How does what I propose fit into what you guys are trying to accomplish? How does what I propose fit into what you guys are trying to accomplish now suddenly makes your blocker feel involved and want you to succeed because they're going to answer you and they're going to want their answer to succeed. And as soon as they give you that answer, you now have a collaborator on the other side as opposed to a blocker. And they now start to work with you to work with the decision maker who's the person you're trying to get to because once you get to the decision maker, after you're done talking to them, the decision maker is going to go back to the blocker and say, what did you think of this guy or gal? How do they interact with you? They're going to say, thank you for bringing this person to me because this fits into our objectives. Or they're going to say, you know, don't ever let that guy through again. Your blocker is going to have a tremendous influence on how all of that is teed up to the decision maker. And that's what the how questions are designed to do. Pull the other side together behind your objective. That's fascinating. So what are some of the other parallels you've seen or some of the ideas that have crossed over from hostage negotiation to business negotiation or negotiation in kind of everyday life? Well, the other side always wants more. They just don't know where it is. And as soon as they feel listened to, they're going to be more amenable to other ideas. There are three basic types in negotiation, and, and they, they get us back to the caveman response, you know, because the caveman part of our brain, the amygdala, that where every thought goes through there, evolution hasn't evolved that out of our brain. It's still there. 
And so when the caveman saw something, he, he thought, I run from it, I kill it, or I make friends with it. It becomes part of my tribe. Fight, flight, or make friends. I eat it, it eats me, I mate with it. You know, however you want to describe those three basic responses. But in each one of those responses, coming to an agreement is a secondary benefit. There's always something more important to the other side than coming to an agreement. And part of that is always in being understood. So if I can gain leverage on you, if I can get more of what I want by not spending a dime, but by simply letting you know I understand, then I open up the opportunity to get more for me and to have you like it. Stuart Diamond wrote a book that I love the title of. It's called Getting More. It sounds very selfish. But it's, in fact, you know, what we all want. We want all want to do better. Getting more is also about having, from my context, it's also getting more by having better relationships, by having someone want to collaborate with you, by, by having the same person want to do business with you again instead of ha- you needing to search for new business counterparts all the time. You know, I have tremendous respect for Donald Trump and what he's accomplished as a negotiator and as a businessman, understand that he has to change his business venues every few years with this very aggressive approach because people get tired of that aggressive approach. When was the last time he put up a building in New York City that came anywhere near to Trump Tower, the Grand Central Station? Magnificent pieces of real estate that he did back in the 80s. Having to look for new business partners all the time means that he has to continually move from place to place to place. Not all of us have the ability to do this. Most of us, like Warren Buffett, we'd, I'd rather be like Warren Buffett because he's got to be not only the richest guy in Omaha, but he may be one of the richest people on the planet. He hasn't gone from place to place to place. And not all of us want to move from place to place to place, almost as if we're in the witness security program. We want to stay in one place and we want to flourish and we want to prosper. And you do that by having great relationships and having people wanting to continue to do business with you. And that's a lot of what this is really designed to do. So you talked about the difference in style between Trump and Warren Buffett. Tell me about how that plays into the sort of the three different negotiating styles, which which you touched on as well. And describe a little bit kind of what each of those styles are. Well, you know, one style is is a very extremely assertive. I suppose that, you know, even more than saying it's assertive, it's aggressive. And the aggressive style is intoxicating because you beat the other side and you have victory and you celebrate. The problem with that is the more people you beat, the fewer people want to do business with you. And what really comes to pass is I was I was talking to a executive in in an energy company in Boston several years ago, uh, the CEO of the company. And in his industry, he developed a relationship of being a very tough negotiator. And after a while, no one would make deals with him. Everybody that he talked to, if by definition you did business with him, he won, that meant you lost. Nobody wanted to do business with him. And he was in a position, he actually had a deal on his desk that he negotiated every single point with the CEO from the other company and the CEO refused to sign. Having negotiated and agreed to every point when it came to signing at the bottom, he wouldn't sign. And he said, I know why this guy won't do this. I've got such a reputation as a tough negotiator. If he signs a deal, it means he lost and he knows his board's going to fire him because he lost. And that's the residue of being the very assertive guy. When you always win, the other side always loses. 
And pretty soon people lose their appetite for that. Nobody wants to do business with you. And to all due respect for Mr. Trump, his businesses are spread all over the world. He doesn't stay in one place. He's not putting buildings up in New York City anymore. He's not building casinos in Atlantic City anymore. He'll build a golf course or a resort in one location, and then he'll have to move on. And my assessment is he's left such a toxic residue with each deal that people don't want to continue to do business with him. That's one type. Now, he actually prefers to be understood, interestingly enough. And, you know, the book that he's he's gotten some criticism over as to whether or not he wrote it. I don't know the art of the deal. I don't know if he wrote it or not. His co-author is bad-mouthing him now, which is another interesting residue of being assertive. But I read that a long time ago. And he was more than willing to talk about and describe the people that could handle him. And there are people that have handled him. His son-in-law is one of them. His son-in-law is not one of the assertive, aggressive types. His son-in-law is very analytical. His son-in-law is very quiet. Ivanka's husband, I believe. And, and this is the great description of what I refer to as the analytical guy. The analytical guy doesn't like open conflict. He sees it as being extremely nonproductive. The analytical guy thinks things through, and you will never discuss a problem with an analytical person until they have at least one solution and probably multiple solutions. So the analytical guy, the non-open combat guy, can do very well with the assertive negotiator. And you, you see that play out in Donald Trump's organization with the people that he seems to have the most respect for. So that's that's the second type. And then the third type is uh, the person who's relationship-oriented. And they make friends. They bring you into their tribe. They want you to be part of their life. They want to have a long-term, ongoing relationship with you. They're likable. And there's an interesting statistic that uh, people who are likable, you're six times more likely to make a deal with someone you like. And that becomes a very strong tactic to be brought into a negotiation. You can you can understand that if you're likable, people want to do business with you. That sounds crazy, right? Why would you want to do business with somebody you like as opposed to somebody who feels like that they, uh, they got punched in the face by you? So likability is is a third core attribute. And in my view, the great negotiator combines all three types. The great negotiator is assertive without being aggressive. The great negotiator thinks things through and comes up with multiple options. And the great negotiator develops a good relationship with you and is very likable. And you want to continue to do business with them. So whatever your default type is, I'm here to tell you, don't discard it. Add to it. Add to it by evolving and improving, not by changing. You've said before that you would never lie to anyone that you're not going to kill. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, you know, that came up because when I was when I went through Harvard Law School's negotiation course as a student, and I was I'm the only FBI agent I think that uh, ever went through the class who wasn't a student. They said, you know, what do you feel about lying? Because they're very much against lying. Lying is a bad idea. And I said, well, as a hostage negotiator, I never lie to anybody that I'm not going to kill. And even then, I probably don't do it because somebody they know is going to find out about it. And I'm going to have to pay for it. I mean, lying is this great seductive trap. Maybe I can just get what I want right now. If I just tell this one lie and I'll fix it later. 
Well, there's 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 a couple problems with that. You just set a ticking time bomb on yourself that's gonna blow up because nobody likes being lied to. That's the first problem. Second problem is, what if they were trying to trap you into lying to begin with? Most people that practice liars try to trick us into lying to see if we will. I mean, they say it a million miles away, and there are some negotiators that actually try to seduce you into a lie early on so they can see your first tell. They'll ask you a question they know that you won't give you a, a straight, direct response to. So many times the temptation to lie is actually a trap set by the other side. All right, so let's pretend like it's not a trap, and most of the time it is. If I lie to you, you're going to make me pay for it. And then when that trust is broken, you're never going to believe me again. And if I could get away with that lie and I never have to deal with you again, since you're, you're in my world to begin with, you're going to tell somebody that I lied to you. And my reputation is going to precede me. There's an old phrase, do something wrong or do something right. Three people know about it. Do something wrong. Twelve people know about it. So there's a 12x multiplier on lying. And that gets around. And then pretty soon you're done in your community. And you're going to have to join the witness security program because you're going to have to move on. So there's just so many things wrong with lying. It's just such a bad idea. I'm not interested in letting myself in for those kind of problems. So how do you feel about compromise in a negotiation? <laughs> you knew you were going to ask me that question. I hate compromise. The spirit of compromise is a great thing. The practice of compromise is a bad thing. The best descriptor for compromise is I got this great gray suit on, and I'm not sure whether or not I want to wear black shoes or brown shoes, so I compromise and I wear one black and one brown. That's compromise. That's, I'm not sure if you're right. You're not sure if I'm right. We'll take a little bit of each one's idea and let's put it together and see how it works. And, and a lot of times compromise is a little bit lazy. Like, I'm sorry for those of you that compromise, but take a little more time. Find a better outcome. Compromise is watering down solutions. Compromise, and then the secondary part of the problem with compromise is we always feel losses twice as much as we feel equivalent gains. So when I compromise, I feel I've given in and I've lost something. And it's going to sting me. And for me to feel even with you, I need you to lose too. Compromise is a path to lose-lose. And then if a loss feels twice as much as, as an equivalent gain, if I lost five, I want you to lose ten. And if I make you lose 10, then when you lose 10, you're going to want to make me lose 20 to get even. And it's this, it's this vicious spiral. And I've heard a lot of people describe negotiation as, well, we were both unhappy, so then I know it was a great deal. That's not what I want. I don't want to be unhappy with the deal, and I don't want to be have a deal where I'm not satisfied till I make you feel unhappy. It becomes this, this vicious spiral and if you just take a little more time and maybe hear the other side out, maybe they'll throw something on the table that you really like. And instead of asking them to compromise, you take their better solution. That gets you out of the, the vicious spiral and maybe puts you into a virtuous circle where things are going better all the time instead of we're getting each other back. So compromise is a dangerous whirlpool trap that I just don't want to get sucked into. Tell me about the idea of shaping what is fair in a negotiation fair is the f word <laughs> you you just use the <laughs> f word on me in a negotiation oh my god fair is this emotional bang bang 
word that if I say to you, look, I just want what's fair, which is said all the time, I just accuse you of being unfair. It's what manipulative negotiators do. It's what the NFL owners did when the when they locked the players out. The NFL players said, we'll, we'll be happy to come back to work as soon as you open the books and show us that you're giving what you're offering us is equitable based on revenue. And the owners didn't want to answer that question. So they said, we've given the players a fair offer. It was a cover for a position of weakness. We use the F word, the word fair, when we're afraid we can't defend our position, but somehow we're losing. So it's actually a great tip of the iceberg window into what's going on with the other side. Nobody ever uses the word fair when they're coming from a position of strength ever, because if they got a position of strength, they'll just lay it out. We often use fair when we're afraid of a loss coming our way and we can't defend ourselves from that loss. And interestingly enough, I tell in all the masters of business administration programs that I teach in, watch for the word fair and I'll bet you'll see it come up in nearly every negotiation you have. And I'll be darned if that isn't true. So people are covering positions of weakness all the time. And fair is the word that comes up more frequently than, than price and is always an indicator of the other side's feelings of insecurity. That's fascinating. I love that idea that, that when somebody starts talking about fairness, it's really a tell for weakness or, or lack of strength. Yeah, it is. It is. So changing gears a little bit, and, and this is something I'm fascinated about. Tell me about the Chase Bank robbery. Yeah, well, bank robberies with hostages happen all the time in the movies. And in, in the real world that we live in, it happens about once every 20 years in the entire country. So I was fortunate enough to negotiate at the Chase Bank, a bank robbery with hostages. And literally, it was in New York City. And the last bank ro robbery with hostages in New York City was 20 years before that. We get into this bank robbery, and we expect bank robbers upset about being trapped. And we get a stone-cold, manipulative guy on the other side who is absolutely convinced that he can work his way out of this. And he was actually – was the first time I, I, I learned about the use of personal pronouns. We couldn't get this guy to use I, me, or my. I want – you know, this is my idea. You know, this isn't making me feel good. We couldn't get him to use a singular personal pronoun to save his life. He always used we, they, and them. He always talked about the guys – the other guys in the bank as being the more dangerous ones. You know, I'm not sure because I don't know what they're going to do. He was always laying it off on them. I've come to find out that this is the hallmark of powerful negotiators in business. If you're sitting across the table from someone that is constantly talking about the people that are not at the table, the rest of his team, you know, my board of directors, the guys that are not in the room, that is a sign of the dominant decision maker in the group. They are covering their influence with plural pronouns because they do not want you to corner them. And in the Chase Manhattan bank robbery, we had the mastermind of the bank robbery on the phone from the very beginning. He manipulated everybody and he was hiding that manipulation from everybody. And he didn't want us to know that he was a ringleader. So he was happy to pick up the phone and tell us about the other guys that were inside 
and he had to ask permission from them. He was constantly laying it off on them. I saw this in a kidnapping in the Philippines about 10 years after that and have come to learn that the dominant decision maker will avoid singular pronouns like the plague. He's hiding or she is hiding their influence. So you're talking to somebody who's who's always using plural pronouns and trying to defer to others. You're talking to a powerful and influential person, and they know it, and they don't want you to corner them. And that was the biggest lesson in the Chase Manhattan Bank. It's such a fascinating story and, uh, and obviously an incredibly important negotiating lesson as well. Thank you for sharing that. What would one piece of homework be that you might have for some of the people listening to this podcast? You know, watch the interactions around you just a little. Watch people talking at each other because they both want to go first. And watch when one of them gets tired and the other keeps talking at the tired person. You'll see the tired person try to get the other side to shut up by saying, you're right, you're right, you're right. Watch the number of agreements that one person thinks was made when the other person just said, you're right, with no intention of following through. Study the dynamics around you just a little bit, and you'll see that if you'll listen first, you're going to save a lot of time. And you'll see that your right is what people say to you to get you to be quiet. And when you can get out of that, the, the homework then is try to get people to say that's right instead of your right and then see what happens. I can promise you that amazing things will happen. What are some resources you would recommend for listeners who want to do some more research about negotiation and some of the things we've discussed today? All right. So I'm going to say I want you to buy my book, Never Split the Difference. I think you're going to get a return on your investment before you finish the first chapter. I think it's a great book primarily because I got a great co-author who wrote a readable book. And the feedback that we've gotten back constantly from everybody that's read it is it's usable, it's counterintuitive, and it's an easy read. It's not unusual to have somebody tell me they've read it multiple times. So I'm going to ask you to read my to buy my book. Now, we got a bunch of stuff on a website, blackswanltd.com, that's complimentary. It's free. We give away a lot of free stuff. We've got a twice a month negotiation advisory newsletter that, that that's very short pieces that give you usable information that comes out twice a month. It's called The Edge, and it's free. We've got a variety of different short PDF reports that will supplement uh, your negotiation. Those are free. We've got some email negotiation lessons that we charge you for. And I think that they're, they're a great buy. You're going to get seven times your value out of anything that you buy from us. And you're going to get a tremendous amount of value off our website and the free stuff also. BlackSwanLTD.com. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. And I can agree. Chris's book is amazing. Uh, and he obviously, anybody listening to this can tell that he has been through some incredible uh, and incredibly difficult negotiations. And there are a ton of lessons from from his book. Well, Chris, this has been amazing. I'm so fascinated with your story and, and your background and all the work that you've done. I just wanted to say thank you very much for being on the Science of Success. Matt, you are awesome. Thank you for having me as a guest. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. And as a thank you to you for being awesome listeners, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or for international listeners, just go to our website and join our email list. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 